we are navigating very turbulent times. Doubt has become a virtue. Deconstruction is lauded. We've lost our compass points in this culture and in this earth in these evil and wicked days. And so, based on the Word of God this morning, I would like to navigate a wonderful and challenging reality that also has been under debate and question. So the title of my message this morning is The Gospel, The Wrath of God, and Missions. The word gospel means good news. In order for news to be good, there usually should be some context of bad news. So the question is, what is the bad news that makes the good news, the gospel, so sweet? Most of us know the hymn Amazing Grace by reformed slave trader John Newton. Why did Newton write in the second memorable stanza, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Why does grace teach the heart to fear? If fear has to be relieved, it can't mean only respect and honor, which are necessary and enduring aspects of our interaction with God. What is the fear that amazing grace relieves? What is the bad news that gospel grace defeats? If I asked you to condense the gospel down into 30 seconds or less, what would you say it is? I would venture to guess that most of you would say something about Jesus dying on the cross, his resurrection as part of your message. And in fact, in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15, we are informed, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And yet... Jesus said that before he went to the cross, before he died, before he resurrected, before he ascended, before any of the major suffering or opposition. It was at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. So let me ask you again, how would you present the Gospel if you did not, could not say that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead? To make it even more interesting, Galatians 3.18 tells us, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And Romans 1 tells us that all the prophets foretold the gospel. So, preach to me the gospel without saying anything from the New Testament anything churchy, without mentioning the name Jesus, or the cross, or the blood. You say you're gospel fluent, preach me the gospel with that challenge. With only what Abraham and the patriarchs and the prophets knew. What is that gospel? If I was to condense the gospel into what Old Testament hearts understood, and put it into three words, I would simply say this. God saves us. 
For after all, the name Jesus actually means Jehovah is the one who saves. If I were to expand those three words to five, and it's critical that we do so that the bad news amplifies the good, those five words words would be this. God saves us from God. If I were to expand those five words to seven, and it is hope-giving that we do so, that we might leave and live with joy, they would be these. God saves us from God for God. And if I would condense the gospel into one larger sentence, I would say that the good news about the bad news is this. The love of God saves us from the wrath of God for the glory of God. Let me make a case for this from Exodus. In chapter 3, verse 7, God speaks. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them. Chapter 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight... I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Chapter 12. God is speaking. For I will pass through the land of Egypt, and I will strike the firstborn. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you. I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over you in the door and not allow the destroyer to come to your house to strike you. Verse 27. It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses when he struck the Egyptians and delivered us. The Bible is shockingly clear. God comes down to save. And when God comes down to save, somebody dies. In the garden, Adam and Eve rebel. God descends and animals die so that skin can cover shame. God descends in the time of Noah to save the righteous few, and most of the world is killed. Abraham builds altars, makes sacrifices, because the text tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God sends his angel to shut the lion's mouth in Daniel's den, and the false accusers are eaten for lunch. And then... The unthinkable condescension for deliverance. Emmanuel, God with us. And all the baby boys in Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem, die. And wailing is heard in Ramah, north of Jerusalem, because there's this wide swath of killing that accompanied the birth of the Savior of the world. Those innocent deaths were only a precursor to the most mystifying one, that the only Son of God would die on a cross 
so that children of men and women of every race, tribe, and tongue can be saved. Whenever God comes down to deliver, somebody dies. And ultimately, soon and very soon, Jesus will return in power and glory. The eastern sky is going to split. The trumpet will sound. The Lord will descend to deliver those who have trusted in him to give unto us the great prize of eternal life. No death, no sin, no curse. And billions will be consigned to eternal death, suffering punishment forever in a very real and very agonizing hell. For whenever God descends to deliver and save, somebody has died. That's the bad news. And this is the gospel according to Exodus. God sees our sorrows. He sees our bondage. He sees our shame. He sees our guilt. He sees our fear. And he comes down to deliver us. And he strikes and he kills in his wrath. But when he sees the blood, he passes over us. Passover means that God was angry enough to kill, but merciful enough to save. To be very clear in the Exodus story, the people were not saved from Pharaoh. The people were not saved from Pharaoh's soldiers. They were not even saved from their own sin. I'll explain that more in a moment. Those under the blood were saved from God. That's what the Bible says. The blood on the doorpost saved the people of God from the wrath of God. It's very clear in the text. The Israelites were saved from God, by God. That's the heart of the gospel. The love of God saves us from the wrath of God for the glory of God. If you have never heard the gospel in this way, I understand it can be shocking. I know that in this day and in this age to talk about the wrath of God or the anger of God is unacceptable. It is uncomfortable to these modern ears. So to help us understand, I'm going to tell a story I told in this church about five years ago. I'm going to tell it again. It's an African story. It's going to take the theology of the Bible and put it in an motive sense that I think will help you understand. Story of an African king had a problem in his kingdom. A chicken thief was running wild. The king decreed that when the thief was caught because there needed to be order in the kingdom and the protection of security and the sanctity of community that that thief would be lashed with 10 strokes of an iron laced whip. But chickens continued to disappear, and the king, growing irritated, lifted the punishment to 50 strokes. More chickens were lost. The king, now feeling mocked, lifted the penalty to 75. Chickens were yet pilfered, and the king, now angry, justifiably angry, with wrath, said, All right, the punitive measure is 100 strokes, a severity doubtful that the strongest man would survive. And then the thief was found. 
And to the surprise and dismay of all, not least the king, the chicken thief was the king's mother. The kingdom was stunned. The king's word can't be broken, not even by the king. Justice must be served. Yet how can a son so brutalize his own mother? What would the king do? Would he uphold judgment and scorn mercy? Would he be merciful and make a mockery of justice? The day of reckoning came and the king sat sternly on his throne. The chicken thief was brought before him. Tie the thief to the whipping post, he ordered quietly. Give her all 100 strokes at full strength. And if you refrain, you do so at the cost of your own life. The crowd was astonished as the thief, the king's mother, was tied to the stake. One more thing, the king said softly. He stood, removed his royal robe, descended from the dais where the throne was fixed, walked down to his mother, wrapped his arms around her, held her tight, completely shielding her body, lovingly laid his head on hers, looked directly at the executioners and said, Now, beat the thief. And the king absorbed the horrific blows of his own judgment with his own mercy for the one that he loved. That's the gospel. That the love of the king saved his mother from his own wrath. The summary explanation of God's character in the Bible is found in the oft-repeated declaration encapsulated for us in Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. The logic of being slow to anger implies that anger exists in the character of God. He's just slow to get there. He is love, he is mercy, he's compassion, he's gracious, he's slow to anger. But it is a component of the character of Almighty God. And woe to those who scorn his mercy, for the scripture is clear, they will face his wrath. And as we're talking about wrath, you're probably even now uncomfortable with the component of God being angry and God being a God of wrath. So what is wrath exactly? Wrath is anger so hot that it seeks to destroy. And I want to make a case that that pure, good wrath that is in God is actually in you as a little sign of his character. And let me just give these examples. Wrath is what you feel when you hear about a young boy being sexually abused. Wrath is what you feel when you hear about young girls being prostituted and trafficked. Wrath is what you feel when you see the havoc and the pain of adultery and betrayal that is spread by divorce. Wrath is what you feel when you see or are on the brunt end of racism or greed or injustice or exploitation. There is something in your emotions, something in your spirit that rises up and says, this is not right. 
This is evil, this is wrong, and I will not stand by. I will fight against that thing. I will fight injustice. I will fight racism. I will fight discrimination. I will fight trafficking because it's not right. And if you are good, you will fight what is evil. Why? Because that's the heart of God. That's what wrath is. That's what the anger of God is. And it is good. The wrath of God has been twisted by the devil to say it's bad. And hell has made God bad. And wrath has made God bad. But all it is is that emotion that says, I'm going to fight for what is good. And if there's something evil, I'm going to destroy it. God cannot be good if he doesn't destroy evil. And when you have those sensations and those feelings and those emotions that rise in you against what is wrong, that is sourced in the character of God. That's the wrath of God. And it's good. Let's say you are a father or mother with three young children and you live in a safe apartment complex in a cozy apartment block. And you're surrounded by other families that you love, all of whom have young children. And one night after you settle the kids in bed, you slip into their room to check on them. And to your horror, you see writhing towards them on the floor a whole assortment of poisonous vipers. There are rattlesnakes and there are cobras and there are mambas and every other deadly snake. There's hundreds of them. And they seem bent, intent on attacking your precious little children, killing them with the venom that will be inserted into those veins with one deadly snap of those long, sharp fangs. And to make my illustration relevant, those snakes have actually been trained and commissioned by demonic forces, by the devil himself, to kill your children and all the children. And if you just capture them and release them back into the wild, they will slither back, and you know it, to attack your children and the children of others wherever they are for the rest of their lives. Knowing that, and you walked into the bedroom of your children, as a loving father, as a loving mother, what would you do to those snakes? You would kill them. You would destroy them. What would you do as a merciful neighbor? You would not catch and release those murderous vipers into the hallway. You would kill that which kills the children. You would kill the snakes to save the children of the world. That's the wrath of God. The killing of what would kill us is why the wrath of God is good and why God cannot be good unless he gets angry, angry enough to destroy that which would kill those he loves. The wrath of God is good then because it's actually mercy, a mercy to his children, a gift of life to those who would be murdered by sin. The biblical record of God's character reveals two essential legs. One is love, mercy, grace, compassion, kindness, and tenderness. The other is holiness and majesty, transcendence, and power, and might, and strength, and justice, and wrath. We tremble at his feet where wrath and mercy meet. 
And some imagine a God who hops along on the one leg of mercy, but mercy without truth and judgment and wrath only corrupts. And others imagine a God who hops along on the one leg of wrath, but wrath without love and grace and patience and kindness only destroys. To diminish, to diminish or cripple either leg is an affront to the God who is truly awesome. You may rightly say that your God is one of love and mercy, but if he is not also a God of holiness and wrath, then he is a God of your own creation. He is an idol, a one-legged idol, who bears no resemblance to the majestic Jehovah of the Scriptures. When the Bible says that mercy triumphs over judgment, it does not mean that judgment and wrath and punishment are removed. It does not mean that God hops along one-legged into the future. It means God came down to save. The king stepped off his throne. He laid aside the garments of deity and he was born to a virgin in a humble stable and he lived a sinful life and he went to the cross and by that he wrapped his arms around you and me and the father said to the son and the son said to the father, let the thief be beaten because the love of God saves us from the wrath of God for the glory of God. God is love and his character is led by mercy. He is slow to anger and yet mercy and judgment are inseparable in his nature and in Jesus, mercy and judgment kiss. It's not the only place in the Bible that talks about mercy and wrath condensed in the character of God. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, John the Baptist arrives preaching. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Romans chapter 1, verse 8, Paul writes about the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. The New Testament will use this word propitiation over and over again. It literally means appeasement. That God's anger has been appeased, satisfied by Jesus on the cross. That God laid your sin and mine on Jesus. And on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. Propitiation in the Bible is the appeasing of the wrath of God by the sacrifice of Jesus. And on him was laid all of our sin. And he absorbed for us all the anger of the righteous Father. Hebrews 2 verse 17 assures us that we now have a faithful high priest, merciful, who will make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus has appeased the wrath of God. 1 John 2, 1-2 says we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus himself, the propitiation. 1 John 4, 10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son 
to be the propitiation, the appeasement from wrath for our sin. Old Testament, New Testament, the two legs of the character of God. He is loving, he is kind, he is good, he is merciful, and he is true, he is holy, he is righteous, and he's angry at sin. They are both in the character of God. And the gospel doesn't make sense unless you have both of them. Paul goes on to explain this beautifully in Romans chapter 3. The righteousness of God is witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 21. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 23. We are justified freely by the grace through the redemption that is in Jesus. 24. Whom God set forth as a propitiation. Verse 25. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over our sins. Verse 26. That he might be both just and justifier. This is the gospel in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. The love of God saves us from the wrath of God for the glory of God. God is just. It is good. It is right that he is angry at sin. It is good that he's a God of wrath who will destroy what destroys us. And he is justifier. He paid the price for our sin by his agonizing absorption of that anger on himself on the cross. And there you have all the themes of the gospel announced in Exodus, fulfilled in Jesus. We've all sinned. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. Jesus is God. Ergo, we are saved by God, from God. For he is just wrath. He is justifier, mercy. God saves us from God. I said earlier that we are not primarily saved from sin. Let me explain that. Because Jesus does indeed save us from sin. It's the meaning of his name. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not primarily save us from the devil, just like he didn't primarily save the Israelites from Pharaoh. He did not primarily save us from sin, for sin is not what slays us. What kills us is the judgment of God on the sin. So I know that's a nuance, so let me put it this way. If you commit adultery tonight, you're probably not going to drop dead immediately after doing so. You could steal tonight and go live another 57 years without complications. You could commit any range of a number of sins today and still live a long consequential life. In the moment, what I'm saying is, it's not the sin that kills you. It's the judgment of God on your sin that will send you to eternal hell. Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 9 and 10. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is coming soon. And when I said that, we clapped and we rejoiced because it is our blessed hope. But he is coming to judge the living and the dead. And the sins of this day will be paid for on that day. 
And anyone who is not under the blood of Jesus, anyone for whom Jesus has not absorbed that wrath of God, he's not the propitiation, he's not the appeasement, everyone in that category will die for their sins, the eternal death of punishment forever in a very literal hell. That's what the coming of Jesus means. A real heaven for those under the blood and a real hell for those who have spurned the mercy of God. They will know the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. And here's the hope for all of us who have trusted Jesus. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to salvation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So we come, therefore, to the implication of the last of the seven-word description of the gospel. God saves us from God for God. In his mercy, we are not appointed to wrath, but through Jesus to live forever with him, our Father, our friend, our King, our companion, our Lord, our lover, awesome and intimate, forever in his presence, I cannot wait. The bad news is that our idiocy, our sin, our rebellion, our pride, our insufferable selfishness, it deserves the destruction, the wrath, the anger of God. We deserve to die. You might not like to hear it, but you must wrestle with it, as must I. We are the snakes that poison the world and destroy each other. There is not one good, the scripture says. No, not one. You are not good. I am not good. You deserve the wrath of God. I deserve the wrath of God. And there is an intrinsic pride in the human being that resents that and hates that. And intellectual deception always follows moral rejection. We do not like the fact that there is a real hell. We do not like the fact that a good God gets angry at sin. And because we do not like that morally, we say it must be wrong. He must be flawed. And we reject what the Bible clearly says says if you want to accept the gospel and receive the mercy of God you have to know confess and repent of being a venomous snake of being a sinful human that destroys yourself and destroys everyone and everything about you none of us are good bad news good news God came down and saved us from God, for God, that we might live gloriously with him forever. Lest those of us who have walked with Jesus for a long time, you have believed the gospel, even if I've presented it in somewhat of a startling way today, you've been living in that reality. Maybe it's become fresh for you in a new sense. But lest we lose our awe and wonder, let me just cite one more example from Exodus chapter 33. Because in verse 18, Moses talks to the Lord. Moses, the prophet of God, the man of God, the bringer of the law, 
face to face with God on the mountain, face shining. He says, please show me your glory. And God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand as I pass by. Same language of Exodus. The Passover and the passing by of God with Moses hidden in the cleft of the rock. But what is Moses being protected from? What is it that Moses needs to be shielded from? The goodness of God. I will make all my goodness pass in front of you. But if you saw it, it would kill you. So I'm going to shield you from my goodness. What is it about the goodness of God that Moses needed protection from? God was shielding Moses not from Pharaoh, not from evil, not from sin, not from the devil. No, again, in this staggering passage, Moses is being shielded by God, covered by his hand. From who? From God. You cannot have mercy and revelation of God in your little idle sense of only the parts of God that you like. He doesn't bow before you. We bow before him. And judgment and mercy are equally in the heart of God. And they do not make heavenly, eternal, divine sense without each other. And we as foolish humans want to pull wrath and judgment out of the character of God, not realizing that we distort his very nature and create something that's actually demonic. So, it is to this passage in Exodus, God saving Moses from the goodness of God because in his sinful human state, his unglorified nature couldn't take it that we get this wonderful hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath. And make me pure. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the tremble joy of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, if you have been in Christ for a long time, I pray that you and I still have tremble joy. That we do not lose the awe of being saved from God, by God, for God. We are hidden from shame in his arms. We are saved from his holy and righteous and good wrath. We are encircled by everlasting grace and love and mercy. Our shame is covered. His honor is granted from guilt to innocence, from fear to power. We walk unafraid in deep awe and reverence. For he is our glory and the lifter 
of our head. Let me conclude. Maybe today the gospel has been made real to you for the first time. Maybe you have walked in these realities for many years. We thank Jesus for the good news. We thank him that he absorbed the wrath of God and extended to us God's mercy. We've been given the honor of living in glory with him forever. That's good news indeed. But here's my point. If it's good news for us, it's also good news for the world. There are 3.15 billion people in the world that have never heard the good news or the bad news. And without the bad news, which was the whole premise of this message, the good news doesn't actually even make sense. Those 3.15 billion are gathered in 7,000 unreached people groups, which is 42% of the world. Last year, this year, it's 42.5%. Because of birth rates, more people are being born into Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, secularist families than ever before. They have not heard the gospel. They don't understand they're in trouble. They don't even understand there's the option for mercy. Jesus, very God of very God, coming the first time to save, is coming the second time to judge. In that first coming, Jesus saved us from the venom of sin. In his second coming, he is going to destroy sin and death forever. He is going to kill all the snakes. And because sin lodges deep in the nature of every man and every woman, all who have not come under the blood will be Destroyed by the wrath of the eternal king, all who have not believed and received the gospel will face the wrath of King Jesus. The Bible does say there is a wrath to come, and it is good and right and pure and true. It is the loving God of all goodness who is appropriately angry at the murderous nature of sin. And he is coming soon, and on that day, he will destroy it all wherever it is found, so that nothing forevermore will afflict his children and spoil his perfect heaven. It's a good thing. The judgment of God on evil is a good thing. Unless, as I said earlier, you ever question it, why then is that in your heart? If that's a bad thing, why is there that sense that rises up in you when you want to destroy evil? Where'd you get that from? Did that come from you? That came from heaven. It will be revealed in the last day. And this mighty, awesome God, the God of wrath and mercy, the God who inspires both fear and love, and rightly so, he is with us right now by his Holy Spirit, but he does not stand here with cap in hand begging. The Lord of heavenly hosts gives orders. And we have been ordered and commissioned to warn the nations that judgment is coming. And to announce hope. Because we love as he has loved us. There is a wrath to come. We do deserve that wrath. God, in truth, cannot be good unless he destroys sin and sinners. And yet, shockingly, wonderfully, sublimely, the love of God saves us from the wrath of God for the glory of God. Go, he tells us. Warn them. 
Warn the nations to flee the wrath to come. Warn the nations that God is good enough and angry enough to destroy what destroys his children. Warn the nations that God is merciful and strong enough to save us from his good wrath unto his great glory. This commission to make disciples of all the nations, this is a missionary commission which at its core is a merciful and a truthful one. And just to summarize what I've said multiple times, one last moment, the truth is we are all under the wrath of God and deservedly so. And the mercy is the love of God saves us from the wrath of God for the glory of God. Will you not be merciful enough to announce this truth to all the nations? Why have you not obeyed this clear black and white instruction of Jesus to go warn the nations of the wrath to come? Why have you not loved them enough to tell them the full counsel of God? Do you have from Jesus clear orders to stay? On what authority do you stay living the life that you have planned out for yourself when we've been so clearly commanded to go? And how can we stay silent or fixated on local when the world is under the wrath of God? And God doesn't manipulate. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't try and twist us into his service locally or globally. But every Christian must wrestle with the beauty of being saved from the wrath of God and the tragedy that the world is under that wrath and that the only deliverance is the love of Jesus by appeasing the wrath of God on the cross. And this mercy and this love must be announced. The love of God saves us from the wrath of God for the glory of God. Will you not be loving enough to announce that to God's children of every tribe and every tongue and every nation? Why? So that all evil and sin can be destroyed and that forever, in eternity, with no curse, no night, no death, no sin, from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation, we co-children of the Father, can live forever in that glorious love. Mm -hmm.